Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. Uh, happy end of fair week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you must not be from Susquehanna County. Um, yeah, it was a good time over there. I, I made a high-risk move, and I ate mozzarella sticks. Some of you know I've had some stomach issues. It was worth it. I'm just going to say, it was, it, was, it was worth it. Hey, we are in our series called Open House, as David said. And uh, one of the reasons why we're doing this series is because um, every now and then, you, you can go down a period of time within an organization or a church or a business, and you can kind of lose sight of why you do what you do. And so we wanted to pause and just remind ourselves of what we believe biblically called to do as a church. Uh, and if you're new here, or maybe you come from another church over the last several months, and you're wondering why we do what we do, and we uh, don't just make it up. Um, sometimes we make it up, but for the most part, uh, we have biblical reasonings behind why we uh, operate the way we do and why we feel called to reach the communities in the way that we do. So uh, that's what we're doing over this series. Last week was the foundation uh, in which we started just laying the groundwork for everything we do as a ministry is based off of two things. It's based off of our dependence on Jesus to do what only he can do, i.e. bring the spiritually dead to life, because we have no power to do that, only he does. And so uh, everything we do is based upon uh, what Christ has done and is doing in the lives of people, and based off the command when he finished his work on the cross to go make more disciples, more and better disciples of the nations. And so that's our mission statement, to make more and better disciples. And so everything we do gets filtered uh, through that. But I, I want to celebrate with you this morning because that vision isn't something that happens because the pastors do it or because people on staff do it. God has blessed Bridgewater in a ridiculous way because of you. See, last week I, I challenged you um, that maybe for you, your next step was to get up and go and have a conversation with somebody who needs hope and needs Jesus. And I, I pray you had that opportunity or will have that opportunity. But I want to show you over the last 10 years of the people of Bridgewater doing what God has called them to do, how God has shown up. Over the last 10 years, we have seen 705 people commit their life to Christ and accept his free gift of salvation. We've seen 620. Yeah, there we go. We've seen 628 people go public with their faith, and every week across all of our campuses, we have five locations, we see an average of over 300 kids uh, back there hearing the good news, raising up the next generation. And in that, amen, come on. I want you to know I've been in ministry coming up on 10 years this September, and I've taught in churches all over the world. Uh, I have not seen God do what God is doing here. It's the reason when I came back from the church I was working with overseas and I showed up in the Legion and I said, God's doing something here. I've never seen this. I've never seen what, what I want to be a part of this. And so I just started attending. And I don't want that to ever be lost in any of us, that we know this happens only because of Jesus and what he's doing. But we do believe that Jesus also revealed some things in his word. And in the word, I think there's some key truths that help us understand what it is to be a church that God blesses and, and to be an individual that God blesses because the greatest blessing for us isn't a full building but a full kingdom. When hell gets robbed, people they think are theirs and they end up in eternity with Jesus. For us, that's, that's the biggest blessing you could ever bestow upon me is to let me be a part of someone finding life in Jesus. And so we're going to unpack this morning, how, how do you become a church, uh, or what we believe the scriptures would reveal uh, how, of how do you become a church or an individual that God blesses, because this isn't everywhere. Uh, so we're going to be in the book of Acts. We're going to turn there in a second. Acts chapter 15, you can turn there while I'm talking. Um, but in Acts chapter 15, what you see is um, really the church was not invented by any one individual other than Jesus. It was Jesus's commission to make the church. 
Well, so Jesus started the church under kind of this guise of um, what they believed it was kind of a sect of Judaism, or meaning um, the Judaic belief, the Old uh, Testament that we understand it, is what they lived their life around. But then Jesus came as a fulfillment, and so it was kind of this offshoot of Judaism. So what happened then when Jesus said, go make disciples, is for the next 20 years or so, um, it got a little muddy as to what it meant to make a disciple. Um, some people thought it was one thing and other people thought it was another thing. And as churches started to grow out from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was kind of the, the hub or the epicenter of Christianity, um, there started to be a disagreement about what it meant to make a disciple. And so we're going to read this passage together because I think it reveals for us um, some incredibly helpful information as to why we structure and why we do the things the way we do and maybe how you would consider how you live your life. Acts chapter 15, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. So Judea is the, the region where Jerusalem is, and Antioch is modern-day Syria, which is a neighboring uh, area. We're, we're teaching the believers. Uh, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and, uh, sh- excuse me, sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they were reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this questions. We'll park right there. So what's happening basically um, is in Judaism, there was all of these external rituals and laws that, that God had given to the ancient nation of Israel to do and follow. And they were good rules. They were uh, things about hand washing, but they were really an external picture of an internal truth. And so the, the ritual of hand washing really didn't have to do with not having dirt on your hands, but it was to represent coming before the Lord with a clean heart, being pure before the Lord. And so there was all of these pictures. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and says, those are great pictures. They pointed to a truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those things are complete. Now everything you need is in me. So that was the message of Jesus, that he comes. But what happened is there was a group of Pharisees, and if you're familiar with anything in the Gospels, is the Pharisees get a bad rep sometimes. Uh, But these Pharisees actually uh, had believed in Jesus. They didn't deny him. They followed him. And so they were uh, believers, but they were stuck not understanding the freedom offered in Christ. And so they were teaching everybody that you had to have surgery in order to be saved. Basically, you had to go through this whole process as a barrier to becoming uh, a believer. Now, I bet you nobody on the way in here asked you if you had surgery before you came in, right? If so, let me know their name because we're going to have a conversation, okay? However, what it represents was a barrier that was created by the traditions of men that stood in the way of people finding Jesus. Now, I'm sure you know a little bit more about that one. Maybe you grew up in an environment where you had to dress a certain way, you had to talk a certain way, you had to do certain things that kind of stood in the way of you coming to God. See, there was this man-made barrier, and Paul, understanding the freedom offered in Christ, is arguing back to them, saying, absolutely no way. God is doing an incredible work through these people. Without surgery, you're missing something. So they debate over a period of time, and then James, the half-brother of Jesus, stands up, and he makes this declaration. Verse 19. 
It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So he stands up and says, hey, 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 hey. You've made it too hard for people to find God. It is my judgment. You shouldn't make it hard for those people to find God. This is a principle that we've built Bridgewater Ministry on. That we believe we should not make it difficult for people turning to God. That people far from God should not have to jump through hoops and ladders and all of the complicated things to try to understand God. It shouldn't be difficult, and it's based off of the Word of God here. Because I've been in environments where it feels like you got to know some secrets to get in. Feels like you're always kind of on the outside, or maybe there's some things that happened there that just felt out of touch. See, Pastor Rick Warren, a pastor and author out in um, California, says this about kind of how we structure church. He says, we invite the unchurched to come and sit on 17th century chairs, which we called pews, sing 18th century songs, which we called hymns, and listen to a 19th century instrument called a pipe organ, and we wonder why they think we're out of touch. Now, he's not, he's not dogging on tradition, but he's trying to get us to realize um, the church stopped moving, but culture didn't. And, and so as churches have reevaluated the culture that they're planted in, knowing the Great Commission to go make disciples of all nations and knowing we need to be reaching lost people, we started going, but are we? Are we? Are we just creating a museum of how church was done all the way back there? And this caused so much tension throughout churches. Because there was these sacred cows, and how dare you take the pipe organ? That's a holy instrument. Well, you know what? That was the devil's instrument when the harp was the only thing that was allowed, right? What was it? It was a cultural shift that moved it along. And so um, those things at times can feel like barriers. And in fact, if you listen to people on the outside, they say, well, your church is just out of touch because so-and-so-and-so. Okay, so we want to remove the so-and-so-and-so barriers so that when people look in, what they see is not rules and traditions, but they see a message of hope. And so that's why we structure the things we, we do. So let's consider our music for a second. Um, we, we don't believe our music should make it difficult for people to turn to God. And if you love hymns, that's awesome. I think there's some incredible hymns. I think there's great truth in hymns. Um, but let's take a little survey here. How many of you listened to polka music on your way in this morning? That's impressive. There has been at least one in each service, which, <laughs> that's great. Good for you. Polka's great for you, okay? How many of you uh, listened to the Gaithers on the way in this morning? The Gaithers, right? Does anybody know who the Gaithers are? Okay, all right, all right, see? How many radio stations play a lot of polka? You might know how many radio stations play a lot of polka. <laughs> I heard they were on the AM transmission, actually. Uh, but, but here's the point. There's a lot of music that the church has played over the years that has become fringe, it's become out there. It's become something people can't necessarily connect with. And so about 15 years ago, we said, okay, we, we want to be relevant to the people walking in the door. So when they come in, they go, huh, I don't feel like I need to put a choir robe on in order to walk in there. I can walk in, however. And so that's, that's really why we chose the music. Now, here's the deal. Are we going to always have these instruments up here? I hope not, because always is a really long time. This is not sacred to us. It's just what we're, God has given us to use to leverage in the season for the glory of God. See, we believe that the mission at Bridgewater for music is simply this. To help the greatest number of people praise God, learn about him, and love him more. 
And so right now, we feel this is a style that helps us do that, that, that whatever we can capture, the greatest number of people, when they look and they go, I see and understand the truth this song is singing about Jesus. I get it. There, there's not things in the way. It's part of the reason why we have the music up. I know some of you would rather wear earplugs. We can get you some earplugs. But here's why we keep the volume up. Because we want you to be able to sing to Jesus without worrying about whether you're off key or not. Right? You go to a quiet church and you're like, oh, I'm not singing out, right? So we keep the volume up so you can feel free to connect with the Lord and not worry about whether you qualify to be up on stage with your singing or not. Listen, I accidentally left my mic pack on one time, which they could hear in their in-ear monitors. It about ruined the whole thing because they had to hear me. See, but the music is up and nobody has to worry about it typically. Right? <laughs> There's actually a gentleman who, um, he was on the overseer board for a while. He's in his late 80s now, and I, I was talking to him a couple years ago. Uh, and he, I said, no, just talking about Bridgewater. He said, you know what, Matt? I hate the music. I said, oh, really? You're an overseer. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, just, I hate it. But I've never seen so much life change. So I'll endure some music that I don't love, and I'll put some earplugs in so it doesn't make my ears bleed, because I've never seen God do this. And I don't want my preferences to get in the way of what, what God is doing here. And I love that. I think that's a, I think it's a wonderful. It's, it's why we wear the clothes we wear. It's why we chose a casual uh, dress is because we don't want to make it difficult for people to come to God, which is our next point. It's simply clothing, right? We could ask you to wear a lot of things. Churches do that sometimes. There was another individual who said recently that he was um, told if he was going to come back to the church, he better buy a suit. Well, he didn't go back for, to any church for 10 years. What a shame, right? See, it's the reason why I wear jeans with holes, so that those of you who really like contemporary aren't offended and you feel comfortable. And why wear a collared shirt for those of you who like tradition, right? It's just the whole package right here. You're welcome, okay? Actually, it was quite funny. There was a, it was probably a year ago, two years ago now, actually, a mom and her daughter walked in. And I could tell they were kind of arguing as they walked in the door. And uh, they come in and they preach. And I see the daughter, she's the teenager, she's down and she points at me as I'm talking. And I go, okay, whatever. I get off stage and go and talk to them. She goes, come here, the, the mom. She goes, you made me lose an argument with my daughter. And I said, what? She said, I told her she couldn't wear holy jeans into church, and you stand up there on stage with holes in your pants, and I lost the argument. I said, well, you're welcome. Uh, I'm sorry. Not sorry, right? See, we don't want clothing to ever get in the way of the gospel. You want to wear a suit? That's awesome. This is not a no-suit zone. But we don't want the traditions of men to ever be in the way of somebody hearing the good news of Jesus. It's why we run our kids' ministry the way we do. It's why we designed that thing to be just a blast so those kids come in. It's why every month we share the gospel in a way that kids can understand. It's why we do everything in the backside of the window or the backside of the wing for that reason. It's why we use the Bible translation we do. We have a lot of grief from people when uh, we left the, the KJV world, um, but we don't think you should have to have an old English degree to understand the Bible. It can be confusing enough on its own. So let's put it in a language that makes sense. You know what? It's not even my personal favorite, but it's good. And so I'm going to lay down my preferences so that we cannot make it difficult for people to hear the message. Anybody ever have a, a, a treehouse growing up? Right? Any of you still have that treehouse? You just call it a man cave now? Right? <laughs> or a she shed, right? <laughs> See, the thing about treehouses is they're pretty cool. We had one growing up. I should say my three older siblings had one growing up. They were quite a bit older than me, and I was never allowed in it. Um, they kept telling me it was dangerous and I'd fall off the edge, and I think that was really just a good excuse to keep me out of it. Um, they didn't want me in it. But one of the things that are synonymous or, uh, that go hand in hand with uh, treehouses are passwords, right? 
Everybody knows the little rascals and you had to have the password before you could get up there. Or there's the sign, no girls allowed or uh, no boys allowed. See, the thing about tree houses is they're uh, innately exclusive. They're up high away from people. There's one entry and exit. They're hard to get in and out of and you kind of have to know your way in. Maybe there's a trap door. So I think it's a real shame when churches feel a lot like tree houses. When somebody walks in the door and it feels like you have to know the secret code, or you have to know the password, or you, you have to know kind of what's going on. See, that's, that's not what we want. We want, and what we believe, according to the book of Acts, we should not make it difficult, is that we need to be much more like an open house. Anybody comes in the door, man, you should feel absolutely welcomed here. Come on. And see, because what I understand about new people walking in the door is they almost always already uh, are nervous the building is going to fall in on their head have been hurt by a church previously, or don't like crowds. And so they're going to find every reason to not come back again. And I don't feel like I can do anything, or I don't want to do anything that gives them that reason. If they make it up on their own, they make it up on their own. But I don't want what this is to ever get in the way, which means if something does get in the way, we're going to change. We, we changed our terminology a while back. We used to say, oh, that's our best practice. We got rid of that. So no, 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 it's our current practice. Because maybe we'll realize that we've become a stumbling block in some areas. We don't, we don't want to do that. See, we believe we shouldn't be a treehouse, but we should really have a porch, a wide open front porch, because the porch is where we welcome our guests. You know at your house, if you have a porch, um, it's not just for holding your Amazon addiction delivery at, up there, okay? It's originally designed for your guests to come in and, and come to your house. And so that's where you first introduce them. So for us, that's our Sunday morning service. It is where we welcome guests most often. If you've come to Bridgewater for the first time, it's usually on a Sunday morning. Occasionally it's a small group or youth group or an event or something like that. Um, but we want this to be a welcoming environment. It's why we structured the things the way we do so that when you bring your neighbor, which I challenge you to do all the time, they would feel uh, welcome. But there's a couple things about why we do this and why we structure it the way we do. But our Sunday services are not an end in themselves. This isn't the ultimate experience of Bridgewater. What we believe is the ultimate experience of Bridgewater is when you find Jesus. That, that's really why we do everything, is that you might have an opportunity to hear the good news for yourself, but it's also where you would be able to grow in your connections and, and move from the porch into our living room, which is what we're going to talk about next week, get in a small group and find connections and relationships because we believe life is better connected and you can't get where God is trying to take you on your own. Maybe from there, you'd move into the kitchen, which is our serving, and you'd be a part of moving the mission of God forward and reaching lost people. See, this is really just a moment in time where we pause, give glory and honor to Jesus, hear the truth declared, and have an opportunity to invite people to make more and better disciples. Now, those two things are not exclusive. And so that's why we teach the way we teach, because we want people to hear the gospel frequently and often. And we believe that makes more disciples, but we also believe it makes better disciples because you will never outgrow your need for the gospel. Those truths should never grow dull. And if I ever stop preaching them, we're in trouble because the deeper you go in your faith, the more we should care about lost people. Those two are uh, tied together. The second thing about it is they're not designed for me. So um, we don't meet at my preferred time. We don't necessarily even sing my preferred style of worship, Right? It's not about me. So the mature believer is going to say, yeah, if we have to meet at Friday at 6 a.m., let's do it. That's fine. And this is something we really have to fight in our consumer culture because um, people can come to church and say, well, it wasn't really my taste. It wasn't really my flavor. That's the wrong question. 
The question is, is the spirit of God there? Is the word of truth being declared and our lives being changed? Outside of that, nothing, nothing else really truly matters. Is God being honored there? Oh, awesome. We're in. So um, that, that is one of our principles here. And that's why guys like uh, Cliff Fane that I mentioned will come and be a part of it because they realize it's not about them. See, the mature are willing to be flexible. The mature are willing to be around things that are different than their preferences because God's being glorified in it. In the book of Corinthians, Paul's actually going to go on, the same Paul who defended against uh, the need for surgery to be saved, is going to go on and defend his ministry a little bit. People began to accuse Paul and say, uh, well, you're just shape-shifting and you're just becoming whatever the culture wants. And they, they really com- are yelling at him for compromising on truth. And so Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians, is going to defend his ministry a little bit. And I want you to read it with me because um, it, it, it explains why we do what we do. It explains uh, why I lead and, and uh, teach the way I do. And hopefully it'll influence the way you live your life. 1 Corinthians 9.19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law. Excuse me, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. See, Paul says here, listen, I'll do whatever it takes. So you want to accuse me of shape-shifting? Good. I must be living (laughs) Christ-like. You want to accuse me of being one thing with one person and one thing with another? Well, good. I'm, I'm doing what Jesus modeled because Jesus showed up on earth and sat with the tax collectors and Pharisees, and then he sat with the religious people, and then he sat with the fishermen, and then he sat with the disciples, and he was uh, being what they understood and what their context needed to hear truth. So Paul says, you know what? When I'm around those who, under the law, which means they have a high moral conscience, so they're going to be your people who uh, feel very strongly about certain moral principles, he says, I'm just, I'm going to cross my T's, I'm going to dot my I's, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to, to blend in. He says, but then I'm going to be around the Gentiles who have no context for the Old Testament law and all these rituals, and I'm just going to eat the meat offered to me, and I'm just going to do the things that maybe would offend these people if I was them, but I'm with these people now. See, Paul is saying the gospel is not ever in worry of being compromised when it's the truth about Jesus, which is there's freedom declared, which means then in this context I can shift a little bit. And so um, if we were in a different environment, Bridgewater would look different, right? Like when I was in India, serving over there, the men wore skirts to church and the women wore pants. Listen, if I was in India, I'd put a skirt on. Why? To not make it difficult for people to come to Christ. If I put a skirt on here in Susquehanna County, it would be a different story, all right? (laughs) I'm just saying There is a cultural appropriation for the gospel that when we are confident in the words of Jesus, all the peripheral things we'll be willing to adjust for the sake of Christ. Like, consider your porch. Your porch is a reflection of you, good, bad, or indifferent, right? It represents something about you, whether you want guests to come on or not. Um, It represents where you live, most likely. And and so um, consider this porch here. Where do you think this porch is? Florida, right? This is a Florida porch. Who's this going to welcome? Me, okay? <laughs> a few of you. This, this screams warmth and sunshine. And then there's some of you weirdos who don't like sunshine, love the doom and gloom and rain, who aren't going to like this, okay? 
You're not going to feel welcome here. My brother was in Florida for two weeks and complained to me the entire time about how sunny it was. And I said, go to Alaska then. I don't know. Like, but this is designed and set up for a cultural appropriate impact. So I was thinking about porches this week. And so I actually went around and I took a picture of a couple of your porches. And I have them up here uh, this morning. Go ahead and throw them up. Um, so I'm pretty sure Frank Mulligan's in here somewhere. <laughs> Right? These porches represent a cultural difference. They are in a different environment. They are in a different location. They're going to not attract anybody who works for PETA, right? There's just going to be some people who don't feel welcomed there, but it is uh, a reflective of a culture that it is around. And then there's this one. What kind of porch is that? <laughs> there is no porch, <laughs> just a no trespassing sign. I think, what a shame when churches feel and look and act like this one. What a shame when Christians in neighborhoods who have the hope of Jesus for the lost world act like this one. When people walk by, they know they're not welcome there. When people go by, they know. And I think, what a shame. What a treehouse. Cool, good for you. Ah, that's not the message that Jesus has called us to live. That's not the lifestyle Jesus has called us to live. You see, we believe the porch is supposed to look a lot like this one. It's supposed to look, this next, next slide, not that one, the next one. It's supposed to look a lot like a party. Because we have the joy of Jesus that surpasses all circumstances. We have the peace that surpasses all understanding. And so when you walk by our house, when we walk by your house, what we should see and what should be reflected to the world is, come on in. We've got the greatest joy ever. We'd love for you to partake in that. We would love for you to come in and know what it is to find Jesus. And so that's why we do everything we do. When Paul finishes his argument about um, kind of shape-shifting and be willing to influence and impact his culture, uh, he, he finishes it by saying this. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Do you see that? He says, I'll literally do anything short of sin so that that person back there gets to hear the gospel of Jesus and find hope for themselves. And this is how he finishes. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. It's everything I do. It's because I know the gospel changes lives and I want to posture my porch that anybody walking by says, if I'm ever in need, that's the porch I'm going to. If my life ever falls apart, I'm going to that house. When I need it, I know where to go. Now we know they need it before they know they need it because we know what's true of the human condition. So then should we not posture ourselves to be ready to welcome people headed towards darkness and bring them into the marvelous light? My question for you as we close today is what can you do in your life to not make it difficult for people to turn to God? Maybe it's in your work environment, and, and maybe there's some people who like to do some things that make you uncomfortable. Well, the mature believer is going to be around those things, not fall into those things, but not also shed guilt on somebody for doing those things, but be around them. Be different, but be with the weaker individual. Be with the person with a free moral conscience in a way that they go, wait a minute. I don't know if I'm judged by you, but there's something different about you. Why aren't you doing this, this, and this? but still hanging out with us. Well, it's because I know a guy who wants to change your life. 
Maybe for you, it's when a coworker or a friend wants to ask you what it means to follow Jesus because they have noticed something different. Could you simply explain the gospel? Do you feel well-equipped enough to be able to make an easy conversation towards the gospel, or would that be difficult for you? Would it be hard to explain how to lead somebody to the Lord? Because that's not just my job. It's your job to, to be able to rightfully defend the word of God, to be able to handle the truth. And so maybe you've got to dig in a little bit and figure out how do you explain the gospel. Maybe for you it's serving. Maybe it's serving in the kids' ministry so that uh, a parent with kids can come drop their kid off, know they're going to have a good time, and come in here and serve. And I, I just, I'm so grateful that we have that opportunity. And thank you for those of you who do that. Maybe it's serving and greeting so that when somebody walks in, they don't see my grumpy face there. They see somebody's real happy face. And it begins to make them lean in and think differently. Maybe it's an invitation because, you know, it's awkward to show up to church on your own. So, you know what? I'm going to be there Saturday or Sunday morning. Come, come sit with me. I don't know what it is for you, but, but when people look at your life, is there some hoops that they may have to jump through to find the Jesus you love? Is there some barriers maybe in the way that would prevent them from just hearing the simple truth about Jesus? Now, in doing all of the things we do, um, naturally, we've been accused of watering down the truth, but um, I have a really hard time seeing 705 people come to know Jesus and say we're watering it down. I, I think, if anything, it's made it more potent. If I wanted to water down church, I'd make it about me. I'd make rules and preferences, and, and I'd make all these distracting things. But I think one of the reasons why God has blessed Bridgewater is because we've kept the main thing the main thing. We're going to lose on a bunch of arguments that we don't think are primary because of what Paul says uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians. He says this. Next slide, bud. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a lot of things we can make important, but Paul says, you know what? There's one thing that's primary, and it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is what I have built, uh, and the Lord has called me to build my ministry on. If I ever stop doing this, fire me. If I ever start going off into peripheral things and making just fire me. Lord will deal with me on sabbatical. Because I know for fact, nothing happens without Christ. It's in him alone. It's not in this church. It's not in this building. It's not in our programs. It's not in my preaching. It is in Christ and Christ alone that the world finds its hope. And so I'm going to do everything in my life to funnel, Lord graciously, to everything in my life to funnel people to Christ and Christ crucified because he is the light that the world needs so if you consider your life what's it pointing towards and is it difficult for people to find Jesus by the way you live your life let's pray Jesus we love you Lord we thank you for the freedom offered in Christ that you don't look on the outside as man looks but you look upon the heart you look internally, God, and I thank you that when you looked internally in my life and you saw the sin and you saw that I was your enemy, you didn't run from me, God, but you died for me. And you saved me from what was in there, and I thank you for cleansing me. I thank you that you are the light of the world, you are the hope, you are everything. Lord, I thank you that you have blessed this church. I pray that you would never remove your hand of blessing, God. If there's anything we're doing that is not honoring to you and not glorifying to you, God, reveal it. We want nothing to be sacred besides the name of Jesus and the word that you delivered to us, God. That we would keep the main thing the main thing. God, I thank you for these three carnations up here today that represent you doing a work that only you could do. 
I pray that as a people, we would continue to be on our knees, that you would do just that for our neighbors, Lord, that they would start showing up on our porches and asking questions, that they would come and want to know more about you. Lord, I pray for those who've been around the faith for a long time and maybe are, are tempted to, to close off their circle and to, to say, well, I have my people, Lord, that we would grow again in a burden for lost people. That as we look out into the world, we wouldn't see it going hopelessly, but we would find a world searching and know that we have the answer that every heart is searching for in you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.